Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. We've taken a long summer break, but we're excited to get back. And for those who are just tuning in, this podcast is for those who already love poetry and those who know very little about it. In each episode, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we are delighted to discuss Liesel Mueller's poem, When I Am Asked. Abram, would you read this poem? Absolutely. When I Am Asked. When I am asked how I began writing poems, I talk about the indifference of nature. It was soon after my mother died, a brilliant June day, everything blooming. I sat on a gray stone bench in a lovingly planted garden, but the day lilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers, and the roses curved inward. Nothing was black or broken, and not a leaf fell, and the sun blared endless commercials for summer holidays. I sat on a gray stone bench, ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatiens, and placed my grief in the mouth of language, the only thing that would grieve with me. Oh, so beautiful. Abram, what what draws you to this poem, or what, what made you want to discuss it today? So I've always loved Liesel Mueller. I mean, I think um, one of the things I love about her poetry is just how accessible it is. When I teach uh, poetry, sometimes people have this notion that it's inherently difficult, this puzzle that has to be solved. Uh, it's going to be impossible to understand. And then you read a poem like this by Mueller, and you think, oh, that's poetry? Oh, I get I. I get that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it just has this immediate relational quality to it. And the other thing I just love about this, so I, I'm a sucker for Ars Poetica poems anyway. And yeah. Ars Poetica is basically poetry about the art of making poetry. It's, a, it's about uh, how it is that things get made, in particular how arts get made. And so this is a poem about poetry. This is a poem about how she began writing poetry. And what I love about the ending of this poem is this sense in which the language of poetry, even when we are in grief and in a certain sense in despair, the writing of the poem itself is an act of hope. Yeah. Um, There's a kind of hope of reader embedded in every poem. And so when she says that she sat alone on a gray stone bench and uh, you get this sense of this, this incredible solitude and loneliness, and the poem is a kind of reaching, it's a kind of expression of hope in the midst of grief. And I, I think of that, I think that way about poetry in general. And so yeah. I love this poem in particular for kind of expressing it so well. Well, that's amazing. And we need to talk about who Lisa Mueller was. She was a prize-winning poet and translator. She was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1924. And that's really interesting because her, both of her parents were school teachers, actually, and they were decidedly anti-fascist. And her father in particular, a lot of pressure was put on him to comply with Nazi-sponsored Answered, uh, pedagogy and ideology in the classroom, and he refused. And so they had to escape persecution in Germany, and it took a while, but eventually they uh, he found an academic 
appointment in the United States. And then in 1939, Liesl Mueller immigrated to the United States with her family. For her to find herself as an adolescent in America, not knowing English, having to learn it quickly, um, and then live here through World War II, and then become one of America's most celebrated poets, it's really astonishing, right? She won the Pulitzer Prize, the Ruth Lilly Prize, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, National Book Award, uh, very prolific poet, uh, and always engaged with history, not as just something as in the past, but something that is always evolving, something we're always looking back to in order to understand our present moment. And I, for me, that has some bearing on the reading of this poem. Yeah, she says in another poem about history and its impacts on us, she says, she's got this incredible line, my country, meaning Germany, my country was struck by history more deadly than earthquakes or hurricanes. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, history, memory, family, this, these are all really important and recurring themes in a lot of her her poetry. And she didn't start writing poetry really seriously until her mother died. This is, sometimes we say, don't uh, associate every poem with the author. Sometimes they're right. a speaker, they're, they're putting on a persona. But this is very clearly an autobiographical poem, which she talked about in other contexts as well. This is yes. quite real that she began uh, writing poetry in response to her mother's death, and she published her first book of poetry when she was 41 years old. Well, maybe we could look at the at what she's doing with, with this poem to see what makes it just feel so just deeply moving. Well, one of the things to notice about poetry is the title. <laughs> Titles really matter. Uh, they, they frequently do a great deal of work, and here you get this, this title, When I Am Asked. And we don't know by that title what she is asked, what she's being asked about. Uh, and we get a sense right right away from the poem, okay, this is the, people are asking her how she started writing poetry. She's going to answer that. But I, I love this opening stanza because it's just three lines long. And the answer, you can sort of imagine this scenario. Somebody comes up to her and says, well, how did you start writing poetry? And she says, oh, it was the indifference of nature. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, what? Wait, huh? What? <laughs> yeah. But there's this sense in which... Uh, that's that's the answer that best explains, you know, this sense of the deep grief she felt and the mismatch between that grief and this glorious June, brilliant, blooming summer day. Like, nature was not doing what it was supposed to be doing to match and express her feelings. It was the indifference of nature that turned her to language. We don't know who's asking, Right? She doesn't say, when you ask me. That's not the mm-hmm. title of the poem. When I am asked, it almost feels theoretical. It feels a bit mm, passive, right? The passive voice, when mm-hmm. I am asked. Notice that she's the only human in this poem, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's not addressing it to a you. She's really very introspective. And she's really bringing us into that deep past so that we can understand something about her singular experience of grief. Mm-hmm. When I am asked how I began writing poems, I talk about the indifference of nature. And she doesn't say, I talk about my time in a garden. It's, again, a very big theoretical phrase. I talk about the indifference of nature, the indifference spurs her to write in a language that humans know to connect with humans, right? The arc of this poem moving from nature not being the sounding board she needed it to be and looking for the thing that provides the connection 
and finding it in the mouth of language. Um, it reminds me actually of the W.H. Auden analogy for, for W.B. Yeats, where he says, you know, there's a famous, this famous stanza about how poetry makes nothing happen. And there's a lot of debates about that yeah. and responses to that and so on and so forth. What he says at the end of that is it survives. He says it three times in that stanza. It survives. And he says, why, basically, why does it survive? It survives a mouth, a way of happening. It's this mm. sense of um, it's not just about expression. It is definitely that. But it's about connection. It's yeah. a, and language is this thing that connects us. And so to be able to put your grief in the mouth of language creates the experience, the feeling, the sense that you are not entirely alone. In the first stanza, she brings us to the dramatic situation of the poem, that someone has perhaps more than once asked this question, and this is what she recollects. And then she brings us into the scene that is so poignant for her. It was soon after my mother died, a brilliant June day, everything blooming. What a stanza. What, what do you yeah. love about that stanza? <laughs> First, it just states the facts, right? Soon after my yeah. mother died. So there's a sense in which um, she's just laying out what happened. Uh, but what I see happening here is that there's all these connections in the words themselves. Mm. Um, so soon, June, blooming. There's that assonance of that sound that recurs. Uh, brilliant and blooming. That's alliteration, the, the opening sound of the word they connect. So all of these words are connecting. All of these words have something to hinge to, connect to, except for one word, died. Yeah. It leaves that word out to dry, and it shows the starkness of it, the pain of it, and in a certain sense, again, the disconnection between it and what nature is doing. That's nice, and I'm also hearing the sound itself, the ooh sound. It was soon, a brilliant June day, everything blooming. That ooh sound, it, it's smooth, it's elongated, and it seems as if there's the um, a juxtaposition between the sorrow over the mother's death and everything is fecundity and abundance and blooming and brilliance, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also that juxtaposition that could maybe even exacerbate the suffering of the speaker, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. So then we come to the third stanza, and it says, I sat on a gray stone bench in a lovingly planted garden, but the day lilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers, and the roses curved inward. Nothing was black or broken, and not a leaf fell, and the sun blared endless commercials for summer holidays. <laughs> I, I, there's something witty about those yeah. endless commercials, isn't there? Somebody once yeah. described her poetry as witty and full of humor, but with an underlying sadness. Oh, absolutely. That's a perfect description of her tone. Yes. Like, but that her poems can embrace both at the same time that it, and that she can do it in just a few stanzas. It's so meaningful. Let's look at what she does here. I sat on a gray stone bench. Notice how many words in her poem are monosyllables or maybe two syllables at most, right? Mm -hmm. I sat on a gray stone bench. I feel like that line makes me, the, the words sit, don't they? Right? Mm. Gray stone bench kind of bring me down in a lovingly planted garden. But the day lilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers and the roses curved inward. What are those flowers doing and how is it working on her? 
Yeah, I get, the, especially with the drunken sleepers thing, I always have this sort of Dionysus, like, you know, this 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 great big party has just happened. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's, it's uh, nature is almost drunk on itself. It's so great. Oh. The daylilies and the, and the roses and everything is just bountiful and blooming and it's almost drunk on its own glory. Wow, um, yeah. And yet here she is, she sits on a gray stone bench the other contrast there to draw out is, of course, the gray stone bench is a man-made object planted in this garden. So, yeah. again, you get this contrast between this this constructed thing on which she sits alone in her grief and then this, this crazy garden that's spread out all around her. But what she's saying is that nothing's wrong here. Everything right. is doing exactly... Nothing was black or broken and not a leaf fell and the sun blared endless commercials for summer holidays. And I guess I chuckled a little when I, uh, when you read that aloud, because you know, it to, to imagine the sun blaring commercials is very funny to me. It, yeah. it puts the sun in a capitalist mode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> and so I, I'm curious what you make of this last stanza, which goes like this: I sat on a gray stone bench, ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience, and placed my grief in the mouth of language. The only thing that would grieve with me. Oh my God, what an ending. So first of all, it's so rich because if you look at the poem, stanza three begins, I sat on a gray stone bench and then stanza four picks it up. And that's the only line that is completely replicated in the poem. I sat on a gray stone bench. And so it's important for her to repeat that, but with a difference, right? Mm -hmm. So the second time she repeats it in this final stanza, I sat on a gray stone bench ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience and placed my grief. What an important verb. Placed my grief in the mouth of language, the only thing that would grieve with me. What a moment of insight. There's all kinds of evidence, especially in recent science, that indicates that flowers and plant life, that they communicate with each other, that they lean into and alongside each other to help each other, right? There mm -hmm. is sentience there, but it's not really for us, right? So our language, our human language is all that we have that could potentially allow her grief to have some shape because surely the nature that she's among and with right now isn't absorbing it, right? Mm -hmm. Those roses are curving inward. The ears of the daylilies are deaf. They're not listening. Right. Uh, the sun is blaring its endless commercial. So she decides, here I am at present on this gray stone bench. I'm going to place my grief in the mouth of language. What does it mean to you that she's placing it and that it's the mouth of language? What an important metaphor for this poem. Yeah. When I think of the word place, I think of this very careful and deliberate choice. Yeah. And the mouth of language is just such an interesting, it has this sense of like, I found this cave to give me shelter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I placed it here. I placed it. Uh, my grief in the mouth of language. And I think of the connections that are built into the mouth of language and the way that this poem ends. And I get the sense of hope of not being alone precisely because of where she chooses in the end to place that grief. Yeah. And again, language is so important here. Her choices astonish me. I sat on a gray stone bench 
ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience. Now, we talked a lot about indifference. That word ingenue seems important as well. What do you think of that? I, I think that that is a word in a certain sense clinches <laughs> this poem yeah. because so ingenue was, uh, it, it, it's a couple different meanings, but one of the meanings is it's as a noun, it means like a, a stock character of a, of a naive and innocent young woman who then is, you know, she's not prepared for the world. She's taken unawares. And then uh, basically to put it in, <laughs> to put it in her sort of language here about the flowers, somebody's trying to pluck her, right? And she's not aware of it. And so she yeah. falls into experience through being, in a certain sense, tricked because she's too naive to understand the reality of the world. That's what ingenue means, in a sense, too naive. And she's looking at all of these flowers, all of this life, all of this bounty, these commercials for summer holiday. And she's basically saying, <laughs> I've passed to the other side. I, In a certain sense, I feel like what she's saying is, I've been there. I saw life that way once, too. And it's a little bit naive. There is this mm. uh, experience, and in particular experience of death, that passes you through to the other side. Uh, and that's when you become to understand the reality of the world in which we live, which is not just about endless summer holidays. Even as the flowers in this garden do not listen and they curve inward, there's still a source of inspiration for her. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and she's surrounded by, she's ringed with the ingenue faces. She personifies them, mm -hmm. the faces of pink and white impatience. The other thing about ingenue, I read that word the same way you do, but the word can also be an adjective and it can mean artless. It can mean free born. It mm. can mean of high or excellent quality. So there's a way in which she could never have written this poem except for the isolation that she feels in this garden. Mm. It's precisely because of the indifference that she's launched into this uh, desire to capture it and then metamorphose it in language, uh, in, in her own language, right? Mm. And I'm very moved by that. And I, I just love how much dynamism there is in that final um, stanza. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. With all that said, would you read this poem for us again? Oh, yes. I am so excited about this poem. <laughs> When I am asked. When I am asked how I began writing poems, I talk about the indifference of nature. It was soon after my mother died, a brilliant June day, everything blooming. I sat on a gray stone bench in a lovingly planted garden, but the day lilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers, and the roses curved inward. Nothing was black or broken, and not a leaf fell, and the sun blared endless commercials for summer holidays. I sat on a gray stone bench, ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience, and placed my grief in the mouth of language, the only thing that would grieve with me. Hmm. I love it. So yeah, good. Me too. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And thank you to Louisiana State University Press for granting us permission to read this poem today. To learn more about Lisa Mueller, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>